Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and another episode of the Yoke with Doke. This week, we have three editions of this podcast coming out. The episodes just kind of blended together really well, and I uh, I figured, why not put them all out at once? So just as a reminder, Tom just recently uh, released a new book, Getting to 18. Uh, it is a awesome book. I highly recommend it. It gives you so much insight into the design process. I learned a ton of stuff just reading this. I I can't even, I mean, we could do 500 podcasts on on the book uh, and all the things talked about in there. So you can purchase yours at dokegolf.com. It is a massive book. It is, it's huge. And uh, it's got just a ton of beautiful images, beautiful maps. And uh, you will definitely know a great deal more about golf architecture if you get it and read it. Uh, just as a reminder, last week we dropped a three-part docu-series on this podcast. It's on the golf ball and the history. Uh, Garrett Morrison, our managing editor, did a fantastic job on this project. He, I mean, he poured a lot of time into this, and it's a different style podcast. As far as I know, you know, nobody out in golf's really doing this style of podcast. So he he had a lot of great interviews with a lot of uh, very smart articulate uh, historians and players and innovators in the game of golf to talk about the three major innovations of the golf ball. So check that out in the feed. Uh, it is called under fried egg stories and the ball. So without further ado, here is episode 24 of the yoke with doke. I miss a green. For example, I'm already upset when I find my ball in the bunker. I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg, fried egg, the dreaded fried egg, fried egg, fried egg, fried egg, fried egg, fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. question i had with all all your courses and you go into detail on on these especially the first 18 obviously which of the courses highlighted in the book would you want to see and play every day if they had an unlimited maintenance budget you know it's such a hard question for me because i don't really There's a lot of architects who want their want every golf course they build to spend oodles of money on maintenance so it's perfect so it reflects well on the designer. You know, Jack Nicholas famously back in the day used to have he used to have a maintenance arm of his company and they oversaw the maintenance of his golf courses that had his name on them for a few years. And they would be, they would pipe right up if they didn't think the, the client was spending enough on it. Um, and A, that's a, that's a hard thing to do with your clients politically. You have to be as powerful as Jack Nicholas to do something like to get somebody to sign off on that. But, you know, it kind of precludes that the golf course is going to be affordable to play. So, you know, I, I've built you know, it used to bug the hell out of me that High Point wouldn't be in good shape when I would go back and play it when it was still there. You know, 
it was still a lot better then than it is now to have it be gone. Um, you know, and I, but I understood that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't spend $500,000 a year on maintenance. They weren't making that. Um, you know, the, I mean, really the answer to the question is St. Andrew's beach. I think St. Andrew's beach is one of the best golf courses I've built. It's just a beautiful piece of land for golf. It would be ranked much higher if it was, if it had the ocean view instead of one dune between being between it and the ocean. Cause it's really only half a mile from the ocean, it, but you just don't have any ocean views on it at all. Is that similar to uh paraparam or paraparam? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. People I've heard it yes. pronounced both ways where it's like one dune away. Yes. And, but in both cases, there's houses on those dunes some looking at the golf course and some looking at the ocean. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, but I'm not saying I don't care about it not having a view. I think it's a really great golf course. You know, it, it was going to be a private club originally that didn't work out. It went through bankruptcy almost right away. And, you know, so the bank owned it for quite a while and they just, they paid a maintenance company company to take care of it so it wouldn't go away and the maintenance company said you know why don't you let us open it as a public course we could you know we could certainly do better than just losing money on maintenance we might even be be able to make money um so they opened it as a public golf course and it's you know it's always been kind of slightly scruffy maintenance and the greens were some of the smaller greens that I built to begin with, but some of them have shrunk quite a bit from what I built. Um, it's still a really fun golf course to play. I just had a bunch of people down there in February. You know, we we built that new course at the National or redid the ocean course at the National, which is only about five miles from St. Andrew's Beach as the crow flies. And so most of the people that were down there played Royal Melbourne two days before our event and played St. Andrew's beach the day before and they played Royal Melbourne in absolutely perfect shape. Like the best condition golf course that I've ever played St. Andrew's beach in really scruffy, you know, normal, busy, you know, just coming out of dormancy from the winter. And well, I guess not. We were, we were into summer, just beat up from a lot of people playing it in the summer. And pretty rough around the edges and green's not really that fast. And then the national for three days on super well-maintained golf courses new. So not quite in perfect shape yet, but, but spent a lot of money on it, you know, pristine looking, really good playing surface. And after all that, a lot of people were like, boy, I really like that St. Andrew's beach. I mean, that's, it's that good of a golf course that even if it's scruffy, People are like, why? That's really, that's pretty cool. There's a lot of cool holes on that. Why don't they maintain that a little better? So, you know, that is the golf course of all the courses I've built. If I could have one in my backyard to play every day, I think that would be it. And, you know, that scruffy maintenance that they've got, it's like a, I think they charge. $90 or $95 to play it Australian. So that was like 65 or 70 US. Might be the best course in the world for $65 US. <laughs> that's uh that's something I always deal like when you go somewhere that's a little scruffy, 
There's Diamond Spring to this Mike DeVries course. It's got a couple problems, but it's in Hamilton, Michigan. I've never, yeah, I've heard of it. I've never been there. That's the only one of Mike's courses that I haven't seen. And it's got this unbelievable ravine scape that really reminded me a lot of like the way Shore Acres has those ravines on the back nine. Okay. Um, And like its final five holes, but they aren't cleaned out like Shore Acres. You know, where you can't see across and you, you know, uh-huh. and I just was like the whole time I'm there and they do single row, they do single row irrigation, uh, gang mow cut, uh, right. you know, one, one cut of grass right into the, the, um, native and it's, it's 30 bucks and it's just, you know, in terms of, and I had, I play, I was playing it and I was just thinking, God, if this place had money, it could be really something. And then I got to thinking when I was driving back, you know what? It's better the way it is right. because everybody can see this for thirty dollars, right? And and that is, you know, great architecture on a cheap budget. It has to come with like for a low cost, has to come with a smaller maintenance budget. Yeah, it has to come with a smaller maintenance budget. It has to come with, yeah. A very low construction budget and a low, ir- which means a low irrigation budget. Yeah, I mean that's the key. I mean, it, you know, you kind of you can't get those. I mean, never mind Augusta. You can't get U.S. Country Club conditions without a very expensive irrigation system, and that's the thing that drives up costs. To you know, now you're not a thirty-five or forty-dollar golf course anymore. You know, and I've seen that the most clearly I saw that I was when we were building Terry Edia and we were hung up there for a little while with the permits. I was down there with my wife and just traveling around, driving around the South Island and a little bit of the North Island and sightseeing. But and, you know, I stopped and saw a couple of small golf courses, but really it was just driving by them. I noticed that it was the summer and like, you know, only the resort. Only the the big expensive resort courses were green wall to wall. The rest of the golf courses were just burnt out yellow, brown, like except for the greens. They watered the greens, they watered nothing else. And I was like, that's how golf in New Zealand is affordable, you know, and that's the difference, you know. You, you, I mean, the, the choice is very stark. You've either got a green golf course that costs two hundred and fifty dollars to play. You got a yellow golf course that costs thirty. <laughs> you know, and it's not the irrigation budget is not that much different, but it kind of is because everything else goes along with it. If you're not irrigating, there's a lot of other things you don't bother with either. Because why bother? You know, you know, it's never it's not going to look green and perfect anyway. So why would you edge cart paths and why would you even have cart paths and and all these other things just start to fall away and you're like, okay, we're just playing ground, we're just playing golf over really pretty rough ground with a good green at the other end, and that's that's what golf is about here. Yeah, sounds like my yard, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not spending hundreds of dollars every month watering it, <laughs> so it's got some it's got some issues, but it's mine uh... too. There's a, there's a lot of that in the golf business. Actually, superintendents make fun of that. You know, they spend all this money to get their get their golf course perfect and you, they go home and the last thing they want to do is take care of their own lawn. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, one of the things I think it was St. Andrews beach was the first time you had a topo with a satellite image of the course, right? 
yeah, it's actually still one of the few that they, you know, they just put the map together. They, they, they put the topo lines right over the aerial photo, which really helped routing the golf course. Just, you know, you could, there weren't many like big specimen trees or anything, but you could see, you know, on a topo map, they'll, they'll make, they'll make little doodly lines for where the trees are, but you have no idea. It's like, are those big pines or are those little bushes or whatever? And in an aerial photo, you can tell, okay, that's a big stand of trees. You know, I'm not going to punch a hole through that if I can avoid it. Um, and I'm certainly not going to play over it. So there were just certain things about that, that having both together that made the routing process easier for me. And it just, you know, that's, you, you said the progression of things, it was almost like the routings were getting more complicated as you go through the book. And I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. And yet St. Andrew's beach, the last one, I did that whole routing before I saw the site and it was, you know, we basically only changed the sequence of it. We didn't really change the holes at all, except for, except for one that we couldn't build for some environmental reasons. The Ian Baker Finch story is just great. Yeah. So, so the, the first version of it, you know, I wound up doing the course with Michael Clayton a few years later, but but the first version, well, when the National decided to do their second and third courses down on the Cups land on this open ground, I heard about that from somebody in Australia, and I went and interviewed for that job. And um, Mike Clayton, who I hadn't met yet, like met me as soon as I went down there. And he's like, we'd, we'd love to work on this with you. Um, we, we think we can get Ian Baker Finch to work on it with us, you know, so that, that will hopefully slightly offset the fact that Greg Norman and Peter Thompson are both trying to get the job. And they're the two most famous golfers in the history of Australia. Um, didn't help. <laughs> they wound up getting the jobs, but, um, so, so, you know, we did a, we did a plan for 36 holes and no, didn't get the job. Very disappointing because it was a beautiful piece of land for golf. And as it turned out, I wound up going back and working on one of those courses 20 years later. Um, then the guy who developed the national originally, David Inglis, who was not involved with the national anymore, had an option on the land for St. Andrews beach. And he called me about, doing the project with Ian Baker Finch. Um, so I, you know, so he sent me the topo and I was like, boy, this looks good. And I did a plan and I went over there to meet him. I took Tom Mead who worked for me at high point and a couple other places. Tom and I went, went there. And I said to Tom, you know, I've got a routing for this that I think is pretty darn good, but I don't want, you know, we've never met these guys. I don't want them thinking, oh, he thinks he can figure it all out from America or whatever. So let's, you know, we're not going to roll that thing out for a couple of days. Um, we'll just walk around and talk with them about what they want. So so we did that and we, we spent a couple of really nice days. Ian is a super nice guy, one of the nicest guys I've met. And just talking about golf in general and and how that would be very linksy and and, you know, such a good piece of ground to work with. And then um, I think it was the second afternoon we were there. Um, Tom and I were going to go out and try to walk some of my routing while 
David had something else to do. He had to go meet with planners or something. And I said to Ian, you know, I, I kind of played around with a routing for this in this, you know, before I came, Tom and I are going to go walk it. You want to go with us? He said, sure. So, so we went up to where what's now the first tee for the, uh, for St. Andrew's beach. And we walked number one and number two and two's, one of the best short par fours I've ever built. And then that original routing, instead of going into, instead of turning right and going to three, four, and five, you went up the hill to where 7T is now. So we climbed up the hill to 7T and looked at, walked seven and eight and nine. And Ian is like, you figured this all out from America? <laughs> You know, and it was just like, well, yeah, it's sitting right there on the topo map. And there's, you know, and there was nothing in the way, you know, because I had that aerial photo to go with it. There were those holes were all laying there. There was, you know, there weren't like trees to cut down or anything getting in the way of those being good holes. So, yeah, I had figured out a lot of the routing for that golf course without ever having been on the site at all. Because I can read a topo map a lot better now than I could when I was in college. I've had a lot more practice at it. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, I talked to Mike Clayton for a podcast about Euro Tour uh, back in the day a few you know a few months ago, and he's been holed up during this quarantine at his beach house, and he's just gotten to play St Andrews Beach. He's got he's got it in his backyard, like you alluded to on the book, and he's been been stuck there for a few months. So he's doing all right there. Yeah. I envy him for that. <laughs> from maybe the best best ground from golf, a question from Sam White. Which course of yours would you consider the least advantageous land for golf, and how did you overcome the challenge? Well, I, th I think probably the least advantageous land were the two sites that I essentially built a golf course from flat ground, the Legends and the Rawls course. I mean... That's not the worst case at all. You, you know, you can certainly have a piece of ground that it just has too many wetlands problems and boundary issues and and severe power topography lines. and power lines and other things. I don't take those jobs if I can avoid it. <laughs> and I pretty much avoided, you know, I, I mean, I pretty much won't take a job if I look at a if I look at a site and just think, well, this is a dead end, I, I'm just not going to be able to figure that out. And, you know, so that's one of the important things about being able to route a golf course is to be able to see at the beginning, that might not be so good. You know, I'm not going to just take a leap of faith with this. Um, you know, where the, so the legends and the Rawls course didn't have those strikes against them. The, the legends did turn out to have some, some more wetlands problems than the owner thought when he bought the ground um, that we had to be very clever about working with. But, the, but those two were essentially flat sites to start. And it's like, how do you create something from nothing? And, you know, in both cases, they were, you know, we, we took kind of a different approach to them in terms of what, what, what we wanted them to look like and then you know kind of ran different directions from there and you know that's something i mean a lot of architects most of their projects are like that P 
Pete Dye, a lot of his projects were like that. And it's a it's a it's a really different process. And it's not to me it's not as fun as trying to find a really cool different hole out of a nice piece of ground. So I don't, you know, I don't do jobs like that very often. And I don't, you know, the people that, that have a piece of ground like that probably don't call me in the first place. If they, if they've listened to a bunch of podcasts, they think, Oh, he only works if the ground's like Pacific dunes. And it's like, no, if I just did that, I, I'd be retired mostly. (laughs) But, but no, I don't, I don't take on those projects. I'll, very often. And I, you know, I I need to have enough time between them to be all right. You know, what would I do the next time that would really be different instead of just doing the same approach again? And this ties into something that you, uh, talked about in the book. This is from Christelle. Um, she asks, it seems to me like contemporary architects, even though, uh, they are true geniuses like yourself. Um, High praise. <laughs> All right, enough of that. <laughs> Only reinterpret the template holes. Why don't they create also their own uh, their own with all the talent they have? Well, Crystal should know as well as anyone that it, there's not. There's a couple of holes in at San Emilion. Crystal's the daughter of our client for San Emilion in France, and. There are some things there that are based on template holes. Like even the first green there is kind of a road hole kind of green. But but there's not there's not very many holes like that 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 are based on something else. Um, but the, you know the the duller a site you have where there's not a lot of topography giving you something to work with, you know the harder it is to be original and come up with a different idea. It, it's you know it's it's more. You know, when you think of what you could do, you know, some shapers will think of what they could do just like, you know, they're used to just pushing earth around and not, they don't think about a golf hole first all the time. They just think about a landform maybe. But most golf course architects think about it in terms of golf holes. And could I do a hole like that hole I love at North Berwick or Crystal Downs or wherever? Um so that's the pro- that's the problem with what Crystal's saying is, is if if you go into a new project and the site is not very good and you know you've heard a thousand podcasts where people are so excited about the Redan hole you, it's just easier to build a, another version of the Redan hole than it is to try to come up with you know it's pretty hard to come up with a par three that's truly original. I mean, there's like 50,000 of them around the world. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's easier to think of something that you like, or, or you, or you, even if the piece of land is good, you'll see something walking around and it will remind you of a hole that you like. And you just think I could do that instead of, I'm going to try to create something original here. So it takes, you know, you have to be really stubborn with yourself to try to do things that are original, especially since there's a lot of golf writers and other people will say, oh, you can't, there's nothing original anymore. You know, it's all been done. I don't believe that. I know I've built some holes that there's nothing quite like them, but 
but you can't you can't just keep churning out holes like that. You're lucky if you do a couple on a golf course that really do feel like that's different. I've never seen anything quite like that before. And even the great golf courses, you know, there's not a whole bunch of them that, you know, you, you could take Pine Valley and say, well, the third hole is kind of a Redan hole. And and just you could pick up at, pick apart nearly any great golf course that way if you want to. So one thing it seems like that really good land affords you is the ability to be unique because the land beneath the hole is unique. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have to come up with the idea. You just have to recognize that it's different and it's good. And then when you and I imagine when you have to come up with an idea, one thing you touched on with Atlantic City is you know coming up with an idea from scratch versus having a golf course already there and the unique challenge that presents. And like when you're when the ground's not interesting, you immediately kind of think about other holes that you've seen. And I imagine that's the same case when you're redesigning an existing course. Yeah, it's very hard. Uh, you know. One of the reasons I don't like to do, you know, big renovation projects where you're totally changing a golf course is it's really hard to get out of the box that the old golf course gives you. It's like, you know, you want to like route the holes somewhat differently, but they've planted trees down beside all of them. So that means you're going to like tear out a bunch of trees and, and it's still going to feel awkward. Like you're, you know, you'll still be able to tell the rows of trees are there unless you tear them all down. So you, you'll, you'll be able to tell that something's changed here instead of that. It's, it's a real new golf course. You know, the, the new course at the national is not like that. It's in land without any trees. So you could kind of change the routing and not get stuck with that. But it's pretty rare to have something like that. Usually everything, if it's an old golf course that you're talking about redoing, everything that's happened over the last 20 or 50 or however many years since that course was built reinforces the original plan. And it just makes it harder to break away from. And even if you just say, you know, I don't really like this golf course much at all, but that one hole over there is pretty good. Maybe we should leave that. And then this one hole over here is pretty good. Maybe we should leave that. That makes trying to fit the rest of them together way harder. You know, you could maybe take one corner and say, I'm not going to mess with that. But once you take, try to leave two or three pieces in different places on the land, you're going to, you're going to wind up connecting them together pretty similarly to what's there. I, I, that's one at, like, I feel like I can look at a, a, land with no course and see holes but if i look at a course and try and see new holes it's extraordinarily harder because you automatically gravitate towards existing green sites even if you're playing from like a different tee to a different green you're still seeing the same kind of golf it's hard to see yeah i don't know that that's just a personal anecdote from somebody that's never designed a golf course and you know the the sad part about that is that's yeah i think that's where much of the future of the business will be you know it's so hard now to to do a new project from scratch and take the leap of faith of yeah i'm gonna buy that piece of land and put a fair amount of money into getting permits for it when i don't know i'm, I'm you know i might just be totally out of luck spending money and they won't let me do it 
And then, okay, you do get permission, but not, you know, with some restrictions that don't make it quite as good as you thought it was going to be. And then, you know, now I have to build all the, not just a golf course, but all the infrastructure that goes with it versus I could buy that piece of land there and it's already got a clubhouse and it's already got a pump station and it's already got all this other stuff in the ground. And I could just, you know, I don't really need much in the way of permits to redo it. I could almost start tomorrow on it, you know, instead of like spending $3 million in waiting four years to get started, I could start on it the next day and start trying to make my money back. Yeah. Um, so a lot has uh, happened since we last talked in the world. <laughs> you well wrote a, you yeah. wrote a book actually actually not much has happened <laughs> it's very true very little has happened i've spent way more time at home in the last five months than i have in in uh any five month stretch since i met my wife <laughs> talk about what it's done in terms of business and if there's been any points in your career that could compare to the, you know, just the design world, like what's happened to the golf architecture world? Um, well, you know, since I got into the business in 1989, there's been, you know, there's been two seismic history events most people are really aware of, 9-11, and then a few years later, the great financial crisis in 2008. And so 9-11, Pacific Dunes was just finished. In fact, we had to, we were supposed to play the Renaissance Cup on September 17th of 2001. We had to push it back a little bit since nobody could fly. Um, you know, and I had just signed up. Actually, I hadn't signed up Cape Kidnappers yet. We were, we were going to work on, we were working on Stonewall. We were getting ready to start working on the Rawls course. Uh, I was, I went to New Zealand for Cape Kidnappers the first time in November of 2001. And, you know, Julian Robertson, my client from New Zealand, you know, runs a huge hedge fund and is a Wall Street legend. And he, you know, so just listening to him talk for three days about how 9-11 would change the economy and, you know, what, you know, what businesses would be really screwed for a long time and what businesses would bounce right back. That kind of helped me from getting too, from despairing too much about how bad it would be. You know, he, he certainly had it pegged that certain things would change drastically. He didn't anticipate actually that, you know, that we would respond by funding the TSA. I mean, without that, um, travel would have been very difficult and people would have been just as reluctant to travel as they are today. Mm. Um, and interestingly, you know, nobody's talking about spending government money to fix that part now, you know, like testing people before they fly or, you know, getting, you know, having some government program to make it feel safe to fly again. You're just on your own wondering if the guy next to you is going to wear a mask and if the airline's going to pack the plane full of people or not. And people are scared to fly. And that's going to make a huge difference in the economy generally, tourism specifically, and golf tourism, 
which has been a big part of my business for the whole time. Uh, that's probably the most significant effect of this. Now, in 2008, um, you know, that was such a huge hit to the economy in general and to the real estate market. And that certainly affected golf construction tremendously. You know, up till 2008, we were building 300 new courses a year. Probably 80% of them were tied to a real estate development in some way. And those pretty much went away after 2008. There's almost no projects being developed like that since. So every golf course architect has, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there, there were way more golf course architects in 2007 than there are right now. And there's way more golf course architects right now than there really should be because so much business has gone away as a result of that. And a lot of guys are still just kind of hanging on by their fingernails ever since trying to just get one project every two or three years to keep going. Um, but that had a huge effect on the business in general, not so much on my business in particular, because, you know, my name never sold real estate. I mean, that affected Arnold Palmer's business and Jack Nicholas business tremendously more than mine, because that was their bread and butter is building, building golf courses with real estate attached. You know, that's how you justify paying them so much money to design the golf course. Their name will help sell the real estate. And when that went away, a lot of their business did too, except for certain places overseas. Um, you know, I remember a land planner that I was that we were working with on a project back then saying that, you know, this is a guy who was in his 60s and he'd been in the business forever. And he said 2008 was the first time that he had seen planning stop. You know, like even 9-11 you know, everybody was like nervous about how it was going to affect their business, but people didn't stop thinking about building new projects. So the people in the planning business and the developers of the world were still out there thinking about what are we going to do next? What are we going to do once we finish this? Where are we, you know, where are we going to take all those profits and put them in a new piece of ground and start again? And 2008, people were the what was going to happen to the economy was so obscure for like two or three years, nobody was planning anything new. I was extremely lucky then. We were finishing, we were, we were halfway done with Old MacDonald and bless Mike Kaiser for going ahead and finishing it even when times were really slow and, and business at the resort had, had slowed down a lot. I think if that had happened a year, if the recession had happened a year earlier and we hadn't started yet, we wouldn't have built it for five years. But because we were halfway done anyway, I was like, okay, we can afford to finish this. Um, and then we also, both Bill and I stumbled into these crazy company that wanted to do a new resort in Florida. You know, a corporate client who, you know, cor big corporations like the Mosaic Company, you know, they have like 25 years into the future projected how much money their company is going to make and what they're going to be doing. And of course they don't really have any idea, but, but they all, they all still have all these projections of what they're going to do. So, and they, you know, and they have a lot of capital to work with from their existing operations. So even the, the great financial crisis was not enough to make them sit on their hands. They were just like, we have to restore this property. We're done mining this. We have to restore it. We want to do a, resort project, we're going to do it. 
but you know, like Mike Kaiser wasn't looking to build a new project in 2008. You know, he, he was just trying to figure out whether the ones that he had were going to keep floating for a while. Um, you know, this one, the jury is still out to my surprise. And contrary to what that land planner guy told me in 2008, I am still getting the occasional call about new projects or total redos like we were just talking about, um, which is great. You know, I, I mean, I was really afraid, you know, a, a lot of our, a lot of the things that we thought we were going to build this year, people have sat on their hands and they're waiting to see because we weren't halfway done with them. The only thing we were in the midst of building was in Ireland and, you know, we'll finish that this summer. But, you know, all the rest of them that hadn't started yet, the first thing you do when something like this comes along is like, whoa, <laughs> hold off here a minute. Let's think about what we're doing. So, you know, like when that happens three weeks before you're going to break ground, the world comes to a halt and you just don't do it for a little while. So, you know, I've got, I've got four projects that I hope we're going to build someday sitting waiting to go and are they going to happen next year i don't know nobody knows um is the coronavirus thing going to be all solved by next year are they going to have a vaccine everybody wants to be an optimist but how much of your money are you going to bet on that you know so developers are in a rough place right now it's like they really don't know what to do but you know, and some of them are like, is this going to change our business model completely? You know, like, I mean, just look at Mike Kaiser's business, just as an example. You know, he's got a place like, you know, a lot of the people that play golf in Bandon fly there. And people aren't flying nearly as much now. Does that mean that nobody's going to go to Bandon? No, they've still got a lot of support from their local market. And there's a lot of people that are still getting on an airplane like it's no big deal. So, and, and a certain percentage of people fly in there privately and those people aren't worried about flying privately at all. So, you know, is it going to be a hit to the, to how many people play golf in Bandon the next year or two? Absolutely. But is it going to like destroy it? Probably not. Uh, Cabot links. Today, as we sit here, people from outside Nova Scotia cannot visit Nova Scotia. (laughs) You know, not only can people from New York not get on a plane and go there, people from Toronto can't either. That's 80, 90% of their business. You know, eventually that'll relax, but right now it's a mess. And then, so... So places like that and, you know, the whole international side of my business, which has been a big part of it the last ever since 2008, is hanging by a thread right now. I don't know where any of those projects stand because, you know, the whole the whole business model of people flying there to play golf is threatened by this. And then there's other projects like Sand Valley that will benefit from that. Your driving distance. You don't have to get on a plane. 
you know, they're, you know, just like all the public courses in America are suddenly swamped with people <laughs> because it's one thing you can do during the coronavirus. Uh, you know, anything that's built around a local business model is actually doing pretty well right now. And that's just like a 180 degree turn inside out from what this business has been the last 15, 20 years. It's crazy that this is, you know, what's spurning like a, un, a never seen really since probably the game started in America, popularity in America for the game. I've got numerous friends from college that never played golf that have picked golf up in the last three weeks really or three months yeah like they are they are beginners there's now a group chat with my college friends that is dedicated to golf and and they're all beginners and i'm like the only one that's a golfer on it it's like a hardcore golfer on it it's just such an it's been such a fun thing to just read because it's a different lens that i haven't looked through into golf in so long and it's through beginners but the public courses are packed, and I guess you know one project that's got. But uh, at the at the yeah. same time, all the public courses are packed. A lot of the private clubs are like thinking it's going to kill them because so much of their business model is based on wedding, the not golf part. Yeah, you know, and and really some of the public courses too. That's where you know I've been saying for a long time, or just biting my lip for a long time. That so much of the golf business, you know, golf is not sustaining itself anymore. That you can't, you know, you can't do a public course without building a clubhouse big enough that you can hold weddings there too. It's like, (laughs) why don't you skip that and not build a big clubhouse, you know, and, you know, have $3 million less in the thing at the start might also work. But it's just, you know, the whole, the whole business has been like, oh, we're going to pull in all this outside revenue or that, you know, even the Scottish and Irish courses, you know, they've gotten so far away from this works with just a bunch of townies playing, paying 800 bucks a year. It only works that way now, you know, it only works that way now with the increased maintenance budgets they have because they have people flying over there worth willing to pay a hundred or $200 around. And that just all went away. And now all of them are like, we're going to fail. I mean, they didn't fail a hundred years ago when there was no outside revenue, but now they're going to fail because they, they've come to depend on it so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You shift your business to certain demands and, you know, to attract the American play, you have to have American maintenance. Right. And, and then, you know, the, it's, yeah. And I think the courses that are doing the best are the, the ones that, have are the least are the most minimal whether it's the mom and pop type places yeah Yeah, absolutely they're you know they're thriving because it's like they don't have a lot of overhead they have the same clubhouse that they've had for 70 years and they have a small fleet of carts that they own and they have you know a a minimal food and beverage business that hasn't been impacted by people not being able to come dine in their restaurant um one kind of piece of news is obviously there's more hoops to get through, but the uh, National Links Trust in D.C. with East Potomac, something that you're attached to, um, obviously that kind of fits what we're talking about here, where it's a municipal golf course, a you know, and one that would be dedicated to, to golf and not have a lot of the frills. Talk a little bit just about East Potomac. I know you've been out there 
um, and just about the the golf course that's there and the golf course that was there and the potential there. Well, you know, um, both Will Smith and Mike McCartan, who are behind National Links Trust, worked for me as interns, construction guys, shapers for a handful of projects back 10 years ago. And both super smart guys, super nice guys. And, you know, and pretty much after 2008, both decided that there, it would be hard to have a future in golf course architecture with all the jobs going away and have started to look for other things to do. They both live in DC. They, you know, they've, they've played public golf in DC. They've seen the conditions are not very good when, you know, Mike McCartan actually did his college thesis on East Potomac Park and being able to restore it. So now he and Will are have done this National Links Trust thing to try to get the lease to operate the public courses in D.C. A very bold and brave move on their parts. You know, that's a tough business to be in in the best of times. Um, and you know, to actually restore them, they've also got to raise a bunch of money f to do it, which is not a done deal yet. So hopefully we'll get to work on the golf course eventually. I don't know when, not right away for sure. Um, you know, what fascinated Mike about East Potomac, it's, it's on a super flat, pointy little, I think it's an island. If it's close to an island, if it's not really an a island, peninsula. Yeah, I mean it's 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 down just it's it's just below the the tidal basin where the Jefferson Memorial is, and it's a really flat piece of ground along the river. And in the 1920s, Walter Travis routed 27 holes there, including and the main 18 holes was a reversible golf course. Now, you know, I've worked on restoring a few Travis courses over the years, starting with Garden City Golf Club, my very first client as, as a consultant. Um, and also, you know, I did a reversible golf course <laughs> here, in, here in Michigan. So, so who better to restore Travis's reversible design than me and Mike McCartan, who's been fascinated with it for 15 or 20 years? Um, the golf course that's there has changed, not completely, but it's, it's fairly different. You know, like most, most of the holes are in roughly the same quarter that they were, uh, two or three of them got pushed out and smushed into the, into the rest by their huge driving range. Um, and when they first talked to me about it and I saw the plan, I was like, well, okay, so we're not going to be able to restore those holes the way they were. Cause the, you know, the driving range is the cash cow of the whole thing. And yet, you know, when, when Mike started talking about restoring the original golf course to, I mean, the lessee is not the city of DC. It's the national park service that all that ground is actually national park land. And the National Park Service, when you talk about restoration, they take that way more seriously than country clubs do. Th to them, that is that is a commitment 
to restoring what was really there. It's just like talking about it to the um, the National Trust in the UK. It was like, you know, when you talk to the National Trust in the UK about restoring a home, it's like, well, it didn't have bathrooms originally, so we're not sure we can let you put them in. <laughs> you know, so that that's who we're dealing with overseeing the thing if we if we do restore the golf course. They're going to want it put back pretty much exactly the way it was, including moving the double-decker driving range to somewhere where it doesn't interfere with that 18-hole that routing. Um, you know, in addition to some of the holes not being in quite the same place anymore, it seems like they, I don't know why, but they, you know, they moved a few greens at some point and just, you can kind of see contour where the old green was, except there's a tree planted there now. <laughs> so, um, it's going to be a fair amount of work. And then on top of that, it doesn't drain very well. It's a really flat site. There's only six or eight feet of elevation change on it. And, and the Potomac River floods sometimes to the point where, you know, quite a bit of the golf course has gone underwater for a week or two at a time. So we've got to figure out, do we raise the whole thing up as like a huge project and would cost, you know, another five or $10 million more than what it will cost to fix, to just restore the golf course on the at ground level? Or do we figure out like some... Uh, very clever drainage system like Pete Dye put in on a few of his golf courses in the southeast that are all, you know, that have almost no elevation change to them to like, you know, basically suck the water away as soon as you get an event like that. So, so you get it back in, you know, not covered by water and in good shape pretty fast. Uh, we still got to figure that out. Kind of depends on how we can raise the money to do it. But, but other than that, is it restorable? Absolutely, yes. Uh, the ground's still all there. And what a neat project to work on. And, you know, and the goal is kind of like the goal that we had at Common Ground is, you know, put money into it, but not try to turn it into a $100 golf course. You know, whatever we do, you know, most of it's going to be done through donations and uh so that won't affect the bottom line at all and it you know and hopefully there's still it's a still a, an affordable golf course for everybody in the area like it always has been and maybe a little more expensive because you you know hopefully they'll maintain it a little better than it's been maintained in the last 30 years yeah and i think it's a it's a situ it's an interesting situation uh when you look at the structure of how they're doing it with a private long-term lease for municipal golf as maybe a potential future model of, you know, Hey, as a private entity, we might be able to, you know, manage this golf course a little bit better. And with a long-term lease, we have incentive to put money into it because that was always what kind of seemingly hand, uh, hand the, the DC courses was that they were short-term leases. So you can't put any money into it and get money return on your investment because you're worried you might lose the lease. Right. Even, you know, even most of the management companies that are in the business. I mean, you know, generally the longest leases I've heard on most of the, most of these deals are 10 year leases and, and the management company might put some money in up front for the first few years. But when they get to like year seven, if, 
if they don't if they don't think they're going to get the lease renewed and they're not on really good terms with the town, they start just letting her go <laughs> and not doing all the verification and stuff that they should be because it's not going to affect the condition of the golf course very much until their lease has run out. You know, that's, you know, it would be better if municipalities really cared about golf enough to maintain them appropriately, but not many do. And, and the, you know, the, the price becomes this political thing from all the regulars, you know, not wanting the price to go up. And, you know, I don't want the price of golf to go up either, but, but you used to be able to maintain a golf course for 25 or $30 around 30 years ago, but it doesn't, that same $25 doesn't go as far down and nobody wants the price to go up at all. Yeah. It's, if this, if it works and the model works, then we could see, it would be great to see some like a Muni revival with a lot of the, there's so many great Munis across the country that have, you know, historic designs that are just sitting there like the one that just pops into my mind i don't know if you've seen sleepy hollow in cleveland no the stanley thompson there it's you know it's wonderful and it's just all just sitting there and it's like oh you know but they it's almost like the you know a lot of times the the governments themselves don't believe in it and and then you you wrote about in your new book uh about you know the village of Sands Point, the other issue is then you get these big committees and and you have a all of a sudden seven hundred people committees when you have the town meetings. Yeah, I mean it's politics makes it hard to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Okay? There's just there's just so many factions that have their own view of what should be done, and you know every community it's like you know. Only 10% of Americans play golf. That's the big problem. In any city, only 10% of the people, plus or minus a couple points, are going to be golfers. So, the you know, the, the, you know, I mean, you know, we've gotten to where we even do it to school systems. It's like, well, only 30% of the taxpayers are going to have kids going to school here. So, no, let's not raise the budget for schools. We, you know, we don't want to do that because we don't gain from it. And... You know, that's, it's, a, democracy makes running, running an operation pretty hard sometimes. <laughs> yeah. 